The Stanford Marshmallow Experiment is a famous social psychology experiment, first conducted in the 1970s. In the experiment, a number of children of preschool age are presented with a simple but potentially very frustrating dilemma. The experimenter informs the child that he or she has a choice to make. Either way, it's explained to them, they will get a treat. And in one of the earlier versions of the experiment, the treat given was a marshmallow, hence the name of the experiment. But the choice, the dilemma that confronts the child is that they can either have the treat right now, straight away, or else if they decide instead to wait 15 minutes, then they can have an even bigger treat, say five marshmallows instead of one. Like pretty much all famous psychological experiments, the results and the conclusions drawn from its earlier iterations have proved difficult to replicate upon subsequent attempts. One of the earlier findings of the experiment, when a set of its participants were followed up later in their lives, was that the children who opted to delay gratification and were successful at earning the bigger treat, went on to enjoy better life outcomes in terms of things such as health, career and financial income. The implication seemed to be that if we have the ability to delay the impulse towards immediate gratification, then we're more likely to enjoy longer, happier and more successful lives. However, an attempt to replicate the experiment in 2018 discovered that the correlation between the ability to delay gratification and life outcomes was statistically insignificant and vanished entirely when socio-economic factors were taken into account. The impact of social class on life outcomes 
seem to render pretty insignificant any ability to delay self-gratification that the children may have developed. But what I want to explore today is not what the dilemma of that experiment statistically might prove or disprove, but something that speaks perhaps to why that particular dilemma was chosen by the experimenters for exploration in the first place. Because there's something about it, I think, that takes us directly to the heart of a very important aspect of being human. The dilemma that the children were confronted with involves a choice between not merely something that's good and something that isn't, but between something that's good and something that might be even better. In other words, it's a choice that confronts us perhaps with the possibility of a greater good, the possibility of something tending towards the ideal. And maybe the whole thing hinges upon our capacity to entertain this notion of the ideal, to be able to imagine, visualise and realise it, because in the context of the experiment, the extent to which we can solidify that notion of five marshmallows that aren't currently present will perhaps prevent us from opting immediately for the direct gratification offered by the inferior single marshmallow. Non-human animals of kinds that might not have the conceptual apparatus to conceive of a greater good would probably be far more likely to seize upon whatever opportunity offered itself. But for those types of animals that have that capacity to imagine the greater good, then along with the possibility of enjoying that greater good, there's a downside, the burden of choice and the responsibility of always having to choose the very best option out of all of those that we have the capacity to imagine. Because if we consciously, willingly choose an option that we know isn't the best, then we are, by definition, no longer acting for the greater good, succumbing to making an inferior choice. This we might also describe by the word temptation and the capacity we have to imagine or 
realize the superior choice, the greater good, the ideal. This we might also describe with the word virtue or responsibility. The Stanford Marshmallow Experiment offers a kind of snapshot of a dilemma, a dynamic that enters into our experience, our mental life, in all sorts of different ways, all of the time, constantly, because it's a fundamental aspect of being a human being, this capacity we have to imagine a greater good, and consequently the burden of the obligation that we then fall under, having the responsibility always to try to ensure that the choices that we make are for the very best. It's this, in part at least, that's given in a pictorial form in the tarot card known most commonly as the lovers. In the Marseille deck, the earliest deck we have, this card is entitled The Lover, and it shows a figure in the middle in male attire, flanked by two figures in female attire. It would appear as if the figure in the middle is in the dilemma of having to choose between two women. The woman on the right is the one depicted in a way that seems more conventionally attractive, perhaps. And she also appears the younger. But our lover's attention in this moment seems captured by the woman on the left of the card, who is maybe less conventionally attractive and a bit older, but she's somewhat boldly, and maybe a little forcefully, grabbing hold of his shoulder, making her presence physically felt, whereas the woman on the right is making a more reserved, abstract gesture. With her left hand, she's pointing towards the lover's heart, and with her right hand indicating herself, almost as if she was saying something like, but I'm appealing to your heart. I am the one who appeals to your heart, rather than forcing myself upon your attention like this other one. And maybe in the appearance and gestures of these two women, there's something allegorical about how choices might present themselves, maybe. Sometimes an option or a course of action, even though it's maybe not the most attractive one. Nevertheless, it's there, it grabs hold of us, it's present. And by virtue of that, it captures our attention. But also, it can sometimes be the case, maybe, that the, the better option, the more attractive option, doesn't present itself in such a forthright manner, and maybe we need to open our hearts in order to become aware of what is the superior choice. Whilst all of this is 
taking place at ground level. Above the heads of these three figures, a child with wings and a bow and arrow is hovering in an explosion of light. Obviously this is Cupid and he's about to set loose his arrow. This creates a heightened sense in the image of a critical moment, something decisive about to take place. A turning point has been reached, a choice inevitably is about to be made. And curiously, Cupid's arrow is pointing towards the woman on the right, even though the lover's attention is currently captured by the woman on the left. Perhaps we might take this to mean that the woman on the right offers the superior choice, and that Cupid as a god can see this, even though our mortal lover at this current moment evidently can't. No other card in the tarot seems to have attracted as wide a degree of pictorial representation as this card. It's very interesting to survey and reflect on all the different names and designs for this card that have survived down through the centuries. Arthur Edward Waite, one of the creators of the Rider Waite deck, calls this card the lovers or marriage. This symbol has undergone many variations, he writes, as might be expected from its subject. In the 18th century form, it is really a card of married life, showing father and mother with their child placed between them and the pagan Cupid above in the act of flying his shaft is, of course, a misapplied emblem. The Cupid is of love beginning rather than of love in its fullness guarding the fruit thereof. The card is said to have been entitled Simulacrum Fide, the symbol of conjugal faith. The figures are also how to have signified truth, honour and love, but I suspect that this was, so to speak, the gloss of a commentator moralising. It has these, but it has other and higher aspects. Wait seems to be correct in his comments. Glancing through the designs of previous tarot decks, often something quite commonplace is depicted on this card. Sometimes the lovers is just a pair of lovers enjoying a meeting. Sometimes with a sense of some kind of scandal or affair taking place. But sometimes as well something far more conventional. One design shows a procession of three couples out in public and Cupid is again hovering over them about to fire his arrow, with a sense perhaps that out of these three couples only one is going to be enjoying the full benefits of Cupid's ministrations. Perhaps it's in order to highlight those higher aspects that weight refers to. 
that in the Rider Waite deck there's a complete departure from anything of this nature. Instead, what we have here is a depiction of the lovers as Adam and Eve, both of them standing naked in the Garden of Eden. Behind Adam, on the right of the card, stands the Tree of Life, and behind Eve, on the left of the card, is the Tree of the Knowledge of Good and Evil, with the serpent still entwined around it. Above them, appearing from clouds and brilliant light, is not Cupid, but an angel. Presumably, these are the first moments of the fall of humanity. It's that moment when Adam and Eve have both eaten the forbidden fruit and the angel has appeared to eject them from the garden. At first sight, maybe this design seems to have little in common with the Marseille Tarot, but the themes we saw there of a fateful choice being made and responsibility having to be taken for the making of that choice, those themes are back again and raised to a cosmic level in this biblical imagery of the fall. The key difference, perhaps, is that in the Marseille Tarot, we're presented with a scene in which a choice is about to be made. And here in the Rider Waite deck, it's the moment just after the forbidden fruit has been consumed. The choice has been made, and this is the instant in which the consequences of that choice are maybe starting to dawn on Adam and Eve. These two human beings, they couldn't stick to the rules. Apparently it wasn't in their nature to feel comfortable with God having responsibility for all their needs and meeting those needs. They were seduced into eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, by the notion of something even more marvellous than what they already had. And the consequence of that choice, instead of God taking responsibility for everything to do with their lives, now they must take on the burden of that responsibility all for themselves. But here, perhaps, is our springboard into some of the deeper challenges and dynamics of this card. Because from here we start to glimpse a curious paradox that although, as human beings, sentient creatures, we're constantly confronted with the need to make conscious choices, always with an eye on the greater good. Nevertheless, there is something that fundamentally we are not responsible for. That is the very fact of our responsibility. Because although as human beings we're obligated to do good, we 
didn't choose that this should be the case. We didn't choose our own nature. The lovers reminds us that nevertheless choices must be made and they will be made in all its various designs down the centuries. Sometimes it's evident that the main figure or figures in the card are taking the right path and sometimes it's clear they're taking the wrong path. Whether the path turns out to be right or wrong is beside the point. What's at issue here is the fact of always having to choose and always having full responsibility for the consequences of that choice. However, it could be argued that given the nature we were created with, God, by putting us in the Garden of Eden, was setting us up to fail. This, perhaps, and the fact that we are not responsible for our responsibility entails that although we are constantly confronted with choices and dilemmas, it's inevitable. It's deeply human to sometimes choose the wrong ones, to sometimes take completely the wrong path. This card, this symbol, the lovers, I think, is also about confronting and acknowledging the reality of that, that despite our best intentions and despite carrying out all due diligence to the extent of our capacities, nevertheless, sometimes we're bound to make the wrong choice. Odd as it might seem at first, there are affinities between all these things. The image of the lovers, the myth of the fall, the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment, and the Oedipus Complex in psychoanalysis. The Oedipus Complex, write Laplanche and Pontalier, is not reducible to an actual situation, to the actual influence exerted by the parental couple over the child. Its efficacy derives from the fact that it brings into play a proscriptive agency, the prohibition against incest, which bars the way to naturally sought satisfaction and forms an indissoluble link between wish and law. What we've been exploring here today and what we encounter in our lives repeatedly and in a myriad of different forms is this situation of a choice, a dilemma, where there appears to be an opportunity, something appealing, but also an obligation to weigh up whether what is offered is for the greater good. So indeed we have here exactly as Laplanche and Pontali describe in relation to the Oedipus complex, the joining together of a wish and a law. 
the wish for something better than how things are currently and the law of always having to judge things by definition in the light of their relationship to a greater good. What Freud believed he had discovered in the Oedipus complex was a pattern of infantile relationships that shaped a human identity to its core determining to a large extent how that human being would tend to relate to others in later life. Of course, much controversy surrounds the Freudian idea of the Oedipus complex, but what we can take away from it here, perhaps, from the Oedipus complex and from that archetypal image of the lovers, is the idea that Not only as human beings are we constantly obliged to make choices, but also to recognise how, in a very important sense, those choices also make us. Our lives, our identities, our personalities are deeply influenced and shaped by this constant interaction between the wish for something better and the law of always needing to act for the very best. However, (laughs) laws can be broken and the law of acting for the greater good is no exception to this. Resisting or choosing not to follow the law is a perfectly human response too and one that also demands some consideration. Let us suppose for a moment that the lover in the Maasai deck decided that, thank you very much, he wasn't going to choose between those two women. Suppose he decided instead to walk away and go home. On the one hand, we could see this as him turning away from an opportunity to develop, to grow into a new identity, to open up new realms of experience. In one light this can seem childish or perverse, even though it might be intentionally so. And yet I think it's important to consider this nevertheless as a valid and viable act. Because not all the choices and dilemmas that confront us in life are necessarily what they seem. Sometimes we're confronted with choices that are forced, that aren't really choices at all, but are presented to us by others in order to intentionally deceive and confuse us. Or, at other times, increasingly these days it seems, we're confronted with a case of having to choose between two evils. When it's a case of having to choose the lesser evil, or having a choice forced upon us, then maybe violating the law of choosing the 
the greater good can itself be the greater good. There can be a creative and revolutionary potential in this manoeuvre. But if we're considering this, we have to be very honest with ourselves, I think. Are we limiting our expression of choice truly because that's the best option? Or could we be acting in bad faith due to fear or ignorance? What the image of the lovers reminds us, I think, is that whenever we're confronted with a choice that consciously and clearly seems to us to lead to the greater good, then, as a human being, it's our obligation to choose it.